Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. Help us to recognize that more day by day. And I'm asking, Lord, that we would know the joy of walking in the path of life, living by your example and through the power of your indwelling presence. Please bless these moments that we have together. Uh, anoint us as we seek the impress of the Spirit. Teach and touch. And now bless us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last in a series of sermons entitled The Healing Presence of Jesus. And so I'm going to talk with you this afternoon about transformation through prayer. Uh, J.I. Packer, who was a theologian, English-born Canadian theologian, said in his book, Questing After God, that religion in America is 3,000 miles wide and a half inch deep. There's a reason. There was an old adage that used to say, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But we have known amazing liberty and amazing blessings. And I'm afraid we've held on to one, this side, not that there's anything inherently wrong with prosperity. And we're questing after God. And until those things are brought together into a surrender to Christ, we really don't know uh, the temporary joys of the worldling, and we really don't know the eternal joys of full surrender. This morning, I want to capture a bit of the sense of God's transformation as He draws us out to Him in prayer. I'd like to start with a quote from the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're coming to the end of three chapters. And Jesus is attempting to strengthen the connection that can exist between us. It says in verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I mean, he's repeating himself. Everyone who receives... For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? Will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Some of you are going through your shelves in your basement, in your garage, and other places, and you're looking in your drawers and your, your closets for things you don't need anymore. And you're boxing them up, and you're bringing them here in the backs of your car or your truck or your trailer, whatever else it is, and you've got a, a list of what it is because it's leaving your house going somewhere else. Sometimes we drop these things off at neighbor to neighbor. And at the Kellys, it seems like a good thing, especially at the beginning of a new year, to create a little order, get rid of some of that excess, make sure that you're not weighed down by the clutter that builds around our ability to buy. 
And so this, this week, that's been going on at our house. And so um, I don't know how many El Salvadorians wear size 13 shoes, but there are a few going down there. But there's a pair that's going to remain on my shelf at home. And I want to tell you about it. I did not grow up rich. I won't say I grew up poor, but I was on the bottom side of the middle class for sure. Four kids. My parents put us in church school all at once before this happened. So a lot of the marginal money, at least in obligation, was kind of evaporated out of the scene. You add to that whatever financial challenges we just had growing up, and you get to a place where you kind of stuck with the ordinary stuff. My grandma would come by the house every once in a while with big back black uh, garbage bags, and in those big black garbage bags would be all the clothes that she had picked out of the Dorcas, which we now call community service, and it would be the most unpleasant experience, but my mother would say, all right, Ronnie, as she'd pull something out. Now listen, big black bags is not how you market things to adolescents, okay? I'm getting in the big black bag and I'm about to pull out another pair of pants. It's like you look at it, it's like, oh my. Go down the hallway, try them on, come back out. But I just want you to know that grandma wasn't coming over with the big black bags for no reason. So against that backdrop, I want you to understand how in my adolescence, something caught my fancy. It was something I wanted. And by the way, I have a book at home called Why We Buy. So much of what we buy is about our identity. And when you're in adolescence, it seems it's even more so. So here I was, as insecure, maybe way more than many adolescents, I'm not sure, might be good sometime for adolescents to sit around, if they could be as vulnerable as they needed to be, find out they all feel exactly the same way at exactly the same time. But somebody gets to the top of the pack and becomes popular and everybody else kind of follows. It's not the best way to live. But I knew in my identity circle there was something that I'd always, that, that I wanted. As a boy, I can remember much younger, probably seven, eight years old, getting a new pair of tennis shoes and saying to one of my friends, I can run faster than you now because I've got new tennis shoes. But now, probably twice that age, I'm thinking to myself, I'd really like a certain pair of tennis shoes. Now, long before we had the fashion icons that, that put their, their silhouettes on the heels of shoes, the marketers were still looking to get more for a pair of leather and rubber than they should actually have been allowed to get. But you know, they'll get what you'll give. And Adidas came out with a pair of shoes that, that uh, they had called the top 10, which was a, a pair that laced up over your ankle, and then they had the high five, which cost less money. But I'm guessing probably 40 years ago, these shoes still cost $60, which was like a whole nother universe for Kelly's. We might have been able to outfit all four of the kids for $60, maybe twice over. But I did something that I didn't know was going to set in motion a family fracture. I said to my dad, Dad, I'd really like a pair of those shoes. 
Now, my dad made no religious profession in his earlier life, a good, kind man. And he didn't have much money. But something settled in the back of his mind, and he thought, I'd like to get that pair of shoes for my firstborn sons. I can remember them sitting at the table, mom and dad, and my mom saying, he doesn't need those shoes. And my mom and dad have a good relationship. Uh, they've, they've, they've made it through 50-some years of marriage, some years better than others, which is probably how it is for all of us. And, you know, I think my dad ran out of arguments. And one day, he said, come on, Ron, we're going to the mall. I don't know where he got the money. We, I've never bought a pair of shoes. I don't think I've ever bought a pair of shoes since then like this. We walked into the mall, into one of those shoe stores that only sold shoes. And uh, my dad made the arrangements, and I sat down there on a chair. This wasn't the black bag version. This was nice, beautiful white shoes with a little band of red and a big band of blue, three blue stripes. They're sitting on a shelf in my basement. I know where they are right now. These shoes, these shoes will always be in my possession. My kids will have to throw them away. When I tried those shoes on and laced them up and walked around on that nice carpeted floor with the salesman waiting on us, I think I felt like I was in heaven. When I tucked that box under my arm with that nice glossy plastic bag on it and the pull string pulled tight and we walked out, those shoes are this expression of Jesus. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, I want you to think about this. When Jesus is writing in Matthew chapter 5, when he's telling this sermon, he says, look, even the Gentiles know how to love. The love we have for each other is going to go beyond that. The love that we have for each other is going to exceed that. We're not just going to love each other. We're not just going to love our own. We're actually going to learn to love like God does, which can actually make those who are other our own. The circle can grow. People can come in. But it requires a right understanding of God. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, there's probably not a person listening to me here today or online who has a hard time getting things for the ones that they love. God wants us to understand that our love is a very veiled, and as Paul would write, we see through a glass dimly. It's, it's a smoky perception that we have of the love of God. But on this last Sabbath, as we talk about prayer, I want you to know when you go to God, He's so many steps ahead of you in what you need, you don't need to fill your prayer time up rehearsing too much of it. Go ahead and ask. He said you could, but don't ask like you're afraid that he won't. There is a journey that God wants to affect in a prayer life that actually lets God out of your director's box and into the director's seat in your life. And this is why Packer could say religion is 3,000 miles wide and a half inch deep. God is calling us to a transformational encounter with him in prayer. 
And I want to talk with you this morning about God's healing hand on us physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. This is something that is a proximity dynamic in a Christian journey. And you can listen to somebody preach and you can read the Bible, but there's something about getting down on your knees as a posture of submission and saying to the God of the universe, could I talk with you? He's made a way through the sacrifice of his son. He's opened the door. It was in symbol and and. And the dynamic of the sanctuary up until the reality of the cross. And now Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's wanting our prayers to join with his to come before the Father. And he's wanting to grow our faith and deepen us and give us a completely different experience. So we have this invitation. But prayer in the name of Jesus, one writer states in Signs of the Times, 1884, is something more than a mere mention of that name at the beginning and the end of a prayer. It's to pray in the mind and the spirit of Jesus while we work His works and believe His promises and I like this last statement, rely on His matchless grace. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to the book of James. James chapter 5 verse 16. Past the book of Hebrews. James is appointed preacher. And in his letter to the churches, he combines two sentiments. We'll begin with chapter 4. Prayer. Letting God out of the box. Verse 4. Strong language. It's relational language. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He tells us just before that, you ask and you don't get because you ask only for yourself. Now, there's at least three reasons that some people's prayers aren't answered. Number one is some people don't ask. So their wishes and their wants aren't answered. Yes, God's looking out for the human race and He's giving us things we don't deserve. In His goodness, there are myriad blessings that are falling on all kinds of people. Everyone in measure. But when it comes down to a relationship of commitments, God, especially for those of us who had had a chance to know him, is looking for something more than the half-inch deep version of Christianity. He's actually looking for an encounter that's transformational. Some people don't know they can ask. Some people don't know when they ask. It's not an appeasement dynamic. God has actually said... You can come to me, and I love what Ellen White wrote in Ministry of Healing, page 225. She says, never does our merciful God turn from a soul that in sincerity seeks him for help. Can you say amen? Amen. So you haven't done it right. So you know you haven't done it right. 
I want you to know something. At the moment that you're willing to turn to God and, there's a, and there is a, a genuine desire to actually encounter him, he's there listening. He wants to help. And yet once we enter into that relationship, he's not content to be the scorned party in a love relationship with the world. He's actually looking to deepen us and the world is crying out that they could see some kind of evidence that uh, Christianity actually makes a better person, changes a society, strengthens a home. Yes, our merciful God does not turn from the soul that in sincerity seeks him for help. Friends, you haven't done it right. You don't feel like you're acceptable God. Understand this one thing. He is merciful. And as Jacob laid hold of him there wrestling with him long ago and, and God realized the day was breaking and wanted to be released, Jacob cried out, I won't let you go unless you bless me. This, uh, this appeal for mercy, for the presence of God, for the intervention of the hand of heaven, this is something from which God will not turn aside. But once the journey has begun, God is looking for something more than something a half inch deep. He's actually looking for this divine intimacy that understands, puts effort and understanding in his heart and doesn't relate to God like a genie, like a, like a bottle that you can rub or a puppet on a stick. God is actually looking for a transformational relationship where our trust and our confidence grows and he doesn't have to be in our box. But when your relationship with God is a half inch deep and it doesn't go the way you want and sound bites is all you've been practicing and a facade is all you've got, it's easy to say, God didn't answer my prayers, where is he? Yet God's got to be in your box. But this morning what I want you to understand, if you have a desire for something better because problems are going to come, life doesn't, life doesn't come sweet and tasty all the while. There are moments when it's bitter and it's sad and it's heavy, a little bit like the weather outside today. In those moments when God does not rush to answer our prayers, God will come close to assure us of his presence. And God in prayer with us is looking for transformation to us even when circumstances are not transformed as we've requested. Prayer is a drawing out of our soul into a deepening encounter with the divine. And in that process, we are changed and God is revealed not only to us, but through us. Praying in the name of Jesus is not just putting his name on the front or the backside of his prayer. Although I will say this, I have noticed an increasing dynamic of talking to the Father, which is whom Jesus directed his talk to. Now, you can talk to Jesus too. They're all God. And yet, it is the name of Jesus that opens up these doors. And we shouldn't act like that name on our lips is not the privileged key. It should be a principled and substantive encounter with God that's not legalistic and formulaic, but it should also bring to the table the mighty permission to go from this world of sin and woe into the presence of the Father. This is our great privilege. Our anchor is cast behind the veil. Christ in the most holy place is our access point, is our access vehicle, is the media through which our heart's desires are born into the presence of the divine center of government. 
There are some who don't ask because they don't care. There might be some listening to me here today. That was dad's religion. That was mom's burden. That's not my burden. Unfortunately, life is hard. Youth is fleeting. And there comes a time when all of a sudden, I'm thinking now of a certain gentleman who in about his mid-50s had churned through a couple marriages, made lots of money, and one day as he was driving by the Cicero Church, felt compelled to pull in. His life was unraveling in rapid fashion. And it would be a wonderful thing for me if I never ever heard the words again from the mouth of a middle-aged or older person, I have wasted so many years. There's some who don't believe. They're sitting here today. As a matter of fact, there are times when I question my own confidence, and yet it's not my confidence that makes the connection. It's looking to Jesus. It's remembering what he said. It's coming back to what he's done for me. And yet along the way, if I abandon a knowledge of everything that he's done or refuse to see it, and there are a number of, there are a number of younger people who are good at critiquing the mistakes of their parents and can't see everything their parents gave them and the potential of what's beyond their experience right now. But when we come to God, we should release, at least rehearse, the, whether it's the slightest intervention of heaven that was an answer to prayer, or whether it is a long list. Go back over it. Is there a God in heaven? Has he intervened before? How did I end up being here today? Have I ever known the peace that floods my soul when I ask for the forgiveness of my sins? Has he ever dusted me off and cleaned me up and put me back on the road of life and given me back dignity and self-respect that I don't deserve and given me a chance to go at it again? The answer for most of us is yes, but if it's not for all of us, it still can be. Some people don't know they can ask. It's important that we fulfill our mission so they can know. I want to look at another important thing that's standing in the way of a lot of people. Go to the book of Matthew. For some people, answered prayer is hindered. God is in a box, and inside that box, he cannot do what he should like to do otherwise. Matthew 18 is a very interesting chapter. It's a call to childhood in the first six verses. It's a call to care of example in the next seven verses, eight verses. It's a call to prayer and confrontation in the next segment. And finally, it's a call to forgiveness. Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive people? Is seven the right number? And Jesus says, you're a long ways off. Verse 22, I do not say unto you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to pay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had to repay the debt. So the slave fell to the ground and he prostrated himself before him saying, have patience, I will repay you everything. And the Lord 
of the slave felt compassion and released him and he forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay it back, pay what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you and all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord was moved with anger, which is not the same as compassion. And he handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And this last verse is so starkly, almost unchristian sounding that it's almost hard to believe it's there, except for one thing. Jesus has a zero tolerance policy on this issue. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There are people whose prayers are really quite hobbled. I can't say totally shut down or hitting the glass ceiling, but I do know this, that someone stood in our meeting last night and testified along this line. They stood right down here in the middle of this aisle and told about how they were the neglected child. And I'm sure they could tell us many stories about how neglected they were. Not only were they neglected, they were the rejected child, and yet they were still in the family dynamic. And long after the mother died, 15 plus years ago, the bitterness remained. And I want to tell you, this Christian sister, if somebody would have asked me, what's her journey like? I would have said, very solid. And I want to tell you something, it is solid. That's why in this 10 days of praying, God was at work moving on this sister's heart. And as she stood there before us, she said, every time I talked about my mother, it was always negative. These roots of bitterness grow best when they're tied to legitimacy. These roots of bitterness spread out best when they're nurtured and fertilized in false and wrong sympathy. Be careful how you listen to people who are negative because behind the negativity there's a spiritual dynamic and in prayer God can do what he did to this sister and said, listen, you need to know something. I've already assured you that your mother's life was hid in Christ. And she didn't say this last night, but I'd add it like this. Her mother's journey went as far as God led her on it. And whatever chapters were written, flawed though they be, the grace of Christ was big enough. And when that sister's mother died, there was assurance in this daughter's heart that my mom is going to see the face of Jesus. But along the way, this dear sister sensed but maybe not me. And so she stood here last night sharing her testimony, reminding us 
That the love of Jesus Christ can heal the wounds of the heart, whether they're legitimate, whether they've been rightly or wrongly sympathized with, God can encounter us in prayer in such a way that nothing stands between us and Jesus, especially a hard heart that won't give to others what we've needed ourselves. The medicine so freely received by us is to be offered in plentitude to everyone else. So I don't know who might be here today who's nurturing a grudge, who has an actual fact behind their feelings. Those are the most dangerous types to have because in reality, you seem legitimate in nursing your wound, but Christ calls us to the measure of forgiveness that he's offered us. And fact or no fact, ask or no ask, forgiveness is to be offered to all doesn't matter how deep the wound is, doesn't matter how dark the deed is, it doesn't matter how heinous the words and the circumstances have been. When God says there's something that separates us from each other, it's not as if he kicks us to the curb, but I'll tell you what, it is as if every time he comes to us, he starts talking to us about what he's been talking to us all along, and sometimes he amplifies the voice. Brothers and sisters, God bless you if you've got a human amplifier in your life. God bless you if you know somebody who cares about you enough to say, you know what? I think you're going to keep falling into that pit if you keep doing that. God bless you if you've got somebody who says, that was wrong. You're walking in the path of darkness. God bless you if the dysfunction of your life can be brought to the end by somebody who loves you. And don't play the fool and think they're the problem for talking to you about it. The path of life is to be found, according to the book of James, by one who turns a, a transgressor, a sinner, aside from plunging themselves headlong into perdition. Amen. God is calling us to a beautiful humility. When the chronicler will say in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, there's another couple conditions on answered prayer. It's not that God isn't wanting to listen to you, but for God to intervene, for God to interject divine interpositioning of power and change of circumstance, he actually wants to do a whole lot more than just make this world and this life good for us. He's actually looking to draw us out, draw us in, transform us from the inside out, and give us an eternal reality, an eternal inheritance that begins here today. Friends, don't resist the call of God to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And how about whole congregations and how about whole denominations? Listen, listen to the news every once in a while. We have another Protestant denomination about to fold in. I'm listening to secular news on the radio and they're talking about a divorce. It's between millions of people. The United Methodist Church is not quite so united these days. What's going on? We're actually unraveling how the Bible is to be read. What's really tearing people apart is the, is the dynamic of, of what we call a rule of interpretation, a hermeneutic, the inspiration of scriptures. And you've got one half going this way with the spirit of the world and another half going this way. But I'm here to tell you, friends, today, the Protestant churches are tumbling like a row of dominoes. And it's going to be over the basis of honesty in regards to the Holy Spirit to be able to do its work, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But individually, we just make up this collective whole. Are Adventists without any corporate responsibility? Is there, are there no corporate sins of ours? 
Have we not taken our, our, our BA and BS degrees, our MAs and, and, our, and our PhDs and whatever else there is to get, our MDs and our DOs? Have we not taken all those things and amassed for ourselves a wonderful convenience and luxury? But look at the world. Look at the church. There is a divine humbling that comes through the slow withdrawal of God in some measure to say, please, wake up. God in our box is not God at all. We are God. And Jesus on a, like a puppet on a stick or God in a bottle is not God at all. And yet we still like the half-inch version as long as circumstances say good and I don't have to suffer. And yet suffering is part of what's at the heart of a very quest like this. We've spent five, six weeks looking at the dynamic of the healing presence of Jesus. And what I'm telling you here today is that God actually says no to a variety of our prayers because he's after a greater healing. He's after a healing of the relationship between you and him, me and him. Fasting and praying. You remember that boy on the side of the Mount of Transfiguration? We had three disciples picked by Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Started a real problem. Because that meant Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Thaddeus and Judas and all the rest that were left behind on the side of the hill had to make a decision. Are they going to lick their wounds because they didn't get called up to the top of the mountain with Jesus? Are they going to rehearse everything they don't like about the church? Yes, the church. Jesus' little church. He's senior pastor, by the way. That's what they do. And while they're sitting there on the side of the mountain, here comes a man who has a need. The problem is they've disqualified themselves to be the channels of divine power. And so when the man gets there with his boy, he says, cast out the demon. And they look at each other. It's like, okay, cast out the demon. And Andrew or whoever it was, I don't know who presided over the service, but it didn't go so well. And pretty soon the demon is actually mocking them and the people think it's quite a show. They're standing around on the side of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And they're on the side in the battle still. The only problem is they're not ready for the battle because they've got the half-inch deep version right now. And eventually Jesus comes down off the mountain and everybody rushes over to him. And there's this an amazing encounter where the man comes up and, and Jesus can see what's going on, but he... He engages the man in a question and then he even asks the man, how long has it been going on? And, and while Jesus is having this conversation, it's going on. And the man gets impatient. And he says, if you can do anything, would you do something? And Jesus says, if you can. All things are possible to those who believe. Amen. And then the man says this line that is like, it's like the golden thread let down from heaven for all of us weak human beings. It's a phrase that the writer of Desire of Ages says, nobody can perish while they pray it. Now, I'm not turning it into the Adventist rosary or anything like that. But I do want you to know something. When you're confronted with the frailty of your faith and the foibles of your actions, you can cry out like the man did to Jesus. You can say, Lord, I'm just messing it up every time I turn around. But I do believe, just help what I don't have. Help my unbelief. And I'll tell you what, Jesus saw the crowd running to him. He cast that demon out of that boy. It was such a violent uh, battle that the boy lay there looking like he was dead. 
Jesus took him up and he was very much alive, friends. Christ still has power. The question is, are we going to enter into the arena or are we going to keep God in our box? It's got to be our way. Argue over theological things. Argue over dynamics of Christian living. Whatever it might be, the truth of the matter is what's missing in the Adventist church and what we ought to be corporately repenting of is that along the way, we've embraced all kinds of benefits from walking in functional living, walking by the law of God, and the world itself is going down well, I won't use that phrase, but it's going the wrong direction. I'm here to tell you, friends, this world and the, the increasing level of dysfunction is apparent everywhere, but what, how much do we care? Yes, you get drawn into this walk with God. He gets out of the box, and it's dangerous. God may actually bother you so much that you change. Oh, praise God. And for half of you, God forbid. Group praying. I want to talk about group praying. Some of you are carrying burdens that need to be shouldered by lots of other people. But you don't even know each other enough to tell that level of family business to them. If you aren't family, it's hard to know this family dynamic of we bear our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other, we shed that sympathizing tear. There are, <laughs> devil loves to isolate people. Get you in your own little sound chamber and leave you there to, uh, to marinate in his doubts that are coming at you from every direction. God calls you into community because in that community, he has the potential to amplify something he's saying and he also has the potential to provide practical flesh and blood prayer burden, prayer carrying, sympathetic hearts that actually give you the boost you need to go the last leg of the journey, to hang in there, to hang on. When Matthew is writing about two or three agreeing in that symphony of prayer, that coming together takes work, especially in this society. Of course, nothing's supposed to be work in this society. Everything's supposed to work easy. But the problem is life doesn't. Spiritual breakthroughs, answers to prayer. They call us into in an experience of humility. God, I've got problems. As if he didn't know. God calls us through his grace into this encounter. And he never takes us farther than we're capable of going. And he doesn't keep us perpetually in the stretch. And he doesn't hold us forever in the furnace. No, no, no. But there are times when he's saying, how earnestly do you want this? Will you draw near to me? Let's talk about fasting for a moment. I am confident in a congregation this large, there are myriads of people who have never fasted and prayed. It's the beginning of a new year. It's the beginning of a new decade. There are problems in your life that aren't getting better. They're going to get worse. It may not be your problem. It may be somebody else's problem. 
God is actually looking to prepare a people who can actually get the attention of the world. I want you to know that Christ, without money and without education and without much organization, got the attention of the world. There's something about the Christian experience actually legitimately lived out that will get the attention of the world. But for that to happen, we're going to have to have a transforming experience. It's going to have to be different than it is. I can remember as a teenager walking through a park in Pekin, Illinois. I'd never really talked about this with my brother, and he attends the first service. I didn't mention it in the first service, but as a teenager, my, my brother had an emergency surgery. I'm a firstborn. I had come to know Christ. I want to tell you, my Jesus walked with me in that park. I walked through that park minute after minute praying for my brother. And I want to tell you, when God brought, I don't know if it was my mom, it's long before cell phones were available, I left the hospital. I wasn't going to sit there with nothing to do, but I walked through that park talking with God. God delivered my brother from that moment. I have walked so many miles with God. If you see me walking this parking lot here, you can be sure I am not without a friend. I walk with my staff. We share times together. But if nobody's with me, I'm walking with Jesus and I'm thinking and I'm talking with God. There's nothing like an open line to heaven with a surrendered life that actually gives you the comfort to face your own flaws and to realize you need to grow here. But I'm with you. I made you. It's doable. Now's the time. In every phase of my life, there's different things for me to see. And I want to tell you, there are days I've gone sometimes where I'm basically saying to God, God, I want your attention. And God, you've got mine. Talk to me. I don't want, I'm gonna, I would rather have a word from you than food. And by the way, friends, food is a good place to experience some fasting if you're medically up to it. It's a good way to actually bring yourself in a, into a posture of humility before God. I'm not appeasing God when I go to fasting and praying. I'm simply saying, God, right now, I need a connection with you more than I need anything else. I need an intervention from heaven more than I need anything else. And I'll tell you what, with that kind of intentionality and the heart that God has, I come away transformed and with peace, and God gets in the mix. And I want to tell you, I've been through some situations where if God hadn't gotten in the mix, it would be a mess. This would be a good year. The Jews fasted twice a week. The Methodists fasted twice a week. The Methodists came to life in their disciplined approach to Christianity. What life might come to us if we left the half inch behind and entered into a much deeper encounter with God where he's not in our box? I want to end this message, though, with all the people for whom it appears that God said no. I want to start with Elisha. When you read in 2 Kings there, you just find this one little sentence. And Elijah was sick with the disease from which he would die. His mentor never died. He was there to watch it. He took his cloak with him. He split the Jordan River with it. Where's the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the Jordan River and it split wide open. And there were witnesses there to see it. 
This is a man through whom the power of God was dispersed in double measure. But when he comes to the end of his life, I think we would be remiss if we didn't think the healing he provided or was the conduit for providing for others. He didn't ask for himself, but God said no. When we think about others, I think especially of the Apostle Paul, whether it was that divine encounter with the luminance of heaven on the road to Damascus or whether it was something else, three times he, he, he pled with God and three times God said no. But when we read about it in Corinthians, he leaves behind this beautiful, he, he, as God is drawing even the apostle Paul into a deeper walk, you come away with this sense that the half inch experience was left a long ways behind and he leaves behind for you and me this message, my grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't want, know what weakness you're facing. You might even have a physical malady for which you're desiring divine deliverance. God still does it. I've seen God take people back from the brink of death. I'm careful to use the word miracle. I am not a sensationalist. But I know God still does answer prayer. And sometimes it seems so insignificant. You wonder how you could bother with him, him bother with you. And other times it's so significant, you know, nobody could do what just happened except God. I can't get away from John the Baptist. If ever there was a man who loved the outdoors, it was John the Baptist. And to be stuck in the dungeon, to be stuck in the dark, the moist, the filth, to be shut up, to have no, he's a preacher, to have no one to talk to, nowhere to go waiting for deliverance. How many times did, before he sent messengers to Jesus, did he call out to God and say, God, would you please get me out of here? And God said no. But above all, there's Jesus. Three times. In Matthew chapter 26, 27, Jesus comes that last night and he says, Father, could this cup pass from me? The answer is no. Father, could this cup pass from me? The answer is still no. Father, could you please take this cup away? But there is one thing in Jesus' prayer. It is the phrase that will separate the half inch from the deep end. Every time Jesus comes to that prayer, it's just like how he taught us to pray. But it's scary praying because it lets God out of the box. God actually gets to be in charge. And there's nothing that we like better than being in charge. Ask me how I know. There's a security to thinking that you work the levers. But I want to tell you, if there's a job where you'll find out fast, you don't work any levers, it's in the ministry. And finally, he says on that last time, one more time, thrice said, he says, nevertheless, not my will. Father, 
I'm looking at the darkest day any human being will ever experience. I'm staring into the, ca- the, the, the chasm of hell. I don't see light at the end of any tunnel. And my humanity shudders under the burden, but not as I will, as you will. And he gets up and he wakes up his friends and he walks to the mob needing a very real God. Good thing there is one. We live in the age of designer religion, even inside the Adventist church. Don't like what this pastor says? Run down the road and get somebody else to tell you something different. Get online. Hear what you want to hear. There's only one problem with that. God doesn't stop being God when you walk out of this room. And God doesn't quit talking even if we quit listening. The dangerous part is that our heart hardens to eventually God has to be in our box. That's why whole whole churches are going to go out. And it's also why entire clans, families, and tribes amongst the non-Adventists are going to come in. Because there's going to be this separating point where the only way forward is to have something more than the half-inch experience. Listen, folks. (laughs) I don't know how deep the depths of hell are that Christ traversed to get us from heaven to earth or from earth to heaven. But I know this. Those tennis shoes on a shelf at home are a dim reflection of which my own fatherly heart expanded and someday my grandfatherly heart. And I do know this. (laughs) His love will not let me go until I pry his fingers off the relationship. In the meantime, I'm learning to let God out of the box and let him do what he wants with my life. And if it shuts down my ambition, that's one thing. If it turns me out of the way of some form of spiritual demise or relational dysfunction, praise the Lord. But whatever it is, for my good or my bad, as best as I can see, as I'm looking through the keyhole, I've learned that he's faithful and true and he has trusted, he has proven himself completely trustworthy in my life. And the older I get, the more I know it's so. So folks, you didn't get the promotion, kids didn't turn out like you wanted, doctor didn't say what you wanted to hear, marriage isn't as good as it could be, finances might be in the pits, I don't know what it is for you, but God hasn't been caught off guard 
and he's still listening, and he can still provide deliverance. Ask him for it and believe he'll do it because he loves you more than anybody else has ever loved you. But if he waits or if he says no, let him be God.